Welcome to Going Antiviral, the podcast for the IAS USA, a professional continuing medical education organization focused on HIV and other viral diseases. I'm Dr. Michael Sag, Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and volunteer member of the IAS USA Board of Directors. Welcome to the Going Antiviral podcast. Today, January 16th, 2024, we are speaking with Dr. Susan Buckbinder. Dr. Buckbinder is Professor of Medicine, Epidemiology, and Biostatistics at the University of California, San Francisco. She is director of the Bridge HIV Project, a research group whose mission over the last four decades is to discover effective HIV prevention strategies in the Bay Area and through international communities. Her research focuses on risk factors for HIV acquisition and interventions to prevent HIV infection. Dr. Buckbinder, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Dr. Sag. So let's start with just kind of a quick history of the epidemic of HIV, how it got started, what the numbers have done uh, over the years, but especially in the last five years. The very first reports of strange cancers and opportunistic infections happening in gay men occurred June 5th, 1981 in an MMWR. And it was then fairly quickly recognized that there was an epidemic happening. Initially, it was noted in um, gay men, and then it was uh, noted in hemophiliacs and in people who inject drugs. There was an outbreak in Haiti, so Haitians were included in that category. It was initially called GRID for gay-related immune deficiency. And it wasn't clear what was actually causing the infection, um, I think it was about 1983 that the antibody test became available, that uh, they were able to identify HIV as the cause of AIDS. And it wasn't really clear in those early years what was happening and if everyone who was HIV infected or HIV antibody positive would ultimately go on to develop AIDS. And we did in those early years discover that there was a group of what at the time we called long-term non-progressors that more recently have been called elite controllers that were people who were living with HIV for long periods of time and were doing quite well um, despite the absence of treatment. Treatment came around, came along in the late 1980s, 1988, I think was when AZT uh, became available, um, but it was monotherapy and was not very effective for very long periods of time for individuals. And it really was 1996 when the combination antiretroviral treatment was first really found to be effective with protease inhibitors and uh, really changed the entire face of the uh, of the epidemic in reducing new, you know, disease progression and deaths. So that means that as treatment came along and death rates were higher in the 80s and people were no longer, the prevalence was smaller, right? Because there were new cases, but people were dying. Once effective therapy came along, the actual prevalence rose pretty dramatically through 2000 to to 2020 and actually to today. And so what's the current a rough number of people infected in the United States and uh, maybe around the world? 
Yeah, so it's estimated that there are about 1.2 million people living with HIV in the United States, and over 700,000 people have died of HIV-related associated causes. Globally, there are 1.2 million new infections each year and 39 million people living with HIV. So uh, quite large numbers uh, of people. This really is a huge pandemic, and it's estimated that there have been over 40 million deaths in people living with HIV globally. So really one of the substantive pandemics of our time. The means of transmission, I think, are known to everybody. They are through sexual activity, and it could be any type of sexual activity, heterosexual or homosexual activity. Uh, It's through sharing of intravenous needles, uh, mother-to-child transmission, but also um, through blood transfusions, which we don't see anymore. So when we're thinking about prevention, interventions that engage in those activities uh, would prevent, theoretically, all transmission. Uh, And at the beginning, we used condoms and safer sex. So how successful were we just with that intervention? Well, I would say that the biggest intervention really were communities coming together to educate each other about uh, the pandemic and um, and then safer sex practices were put into place. And that actually did really reduce new infections early on. But uh, a colleague of mine came out to San Francisco for uh, an HIV vaccine forum once and somebody said, I don't understand why we need an HIV vaccine. People should just use condoms. And she said, if, condom- if behavior change were easy, I'd be thin. And so I think many people can uh, relate to that. And what we know is that it's really hard to sustain behavior change, safer sex practices and condom use over time. Um, So fortunately, we do have now very highly effective biomedical prevention interventions that uh, prevent new infections. Right. And I think the evidence that we were successful, let's say in the 90s, from uh, just the simple interventions of communities coming together is that the syphilis rates dropped. And then over the last two decades, they've come back up again, which means that people aren't paying much attention to condom use or communities coming together to protect uh, one another from transmission. Yes, I would say that's true. What's exciting is that we also have new interventions to prevent bacterial sexually transmitted infections as well. And so our hope is that those will also roll out. Right. So you were mentioning, besides behavioral interventions, there are some other biotechnologies, uh, treatment as prevention, that type of thing. Maybe you can walk us through a couple of those approaches, especially the ones that you're using in San Francisco today. Sure. Well, I think that treatment as prevention is a really critical piece, and that was something that was recognized that if people were reliably sustained on uh, antiretrovirals with viral suppression... Um, that they could not transmit to their sexual partners. Um, And that came after many years and many studies that really indicated that people who were virally suppressed were not transmitting to their sexual partners. So that's great. It's something called U equals U or undetectable equals untransmittable. And so um, that's important both for the individual themselves to stay healthy, uh, to be uh, have their virus suppressed, but also in prevention, in preventing transmission, onward transmission of infection. It's also really important in mother-to-child transmission because it prevents perinatal transmission uh, of the virus. So that's a really key cornerstone of HIV prevention is 
treating people who are living with HIV. And that, of course, all starts with having people get tested. It's estimated that only about a third of people in the United States have ever had an HIV test. And it's recommended that everyone get tested. And testing is the gateway to both prevention and treatment if somebody's living with HIV. So we really need to promote HIV testing uh, as the first step in the prevention pathway. So one of the things we did to that end was we started testing in the emergency department everyone who came in the door because we found that people who were ultimately diagnosed with HIV uh, would be in the ER three or four times before we would discover they had an HIV infection. What are you guys doing in San Francisco, either along that lines or other ways that you're increasing testing? Yeah, we saw that once we removed, it used to be that people had to sign separate informed consent and go through a long informed consent process in order just to get an HIV test. And that clearly was a barrier to people getting tested. So once that was removed and we really scaled up community kinds of testing, we do a lot of outreach. We do testing in emergency rooms. We do testing in people who are hospitalized. Um, That really... uh, because we're not very good at anticipating who it is that's going to actually be living with HIV, both because we're not very good at necessarily taking sexual and substance use histories, but also because sometimes people themselves don't have really high risk um, uh, behaviors, particularly for women. Um, It's almost one in five new infections in the United States are in women, and oftentimes they have a single partner. And so it may be difficult to anticipate which which people are going to be living with HIV. And it's it's also it's estimated about um, 13% of people living with HIV are unaware of their HIV infection, but that accounts for 38% of new infections. So if we can get people tested and aware that they're infected, we can get them into treatment um, that's better for their health and better for prevention. So studies way back when looked at uh, individuals, uh, pr- providers, and their ability to estimate relative risk of a patient in front of them, and they were terrible. Right? They were no good. They couldn't. They couldn't estimate this at all. So, what you're saying is exactly right. We should have everyone be tested at least once. I don't care who they are. And what I used to say is, anyone who's sexually active or even thought about being sexually active should be tested uh, uh, over time. Another modality, just to wrap up uh, the prevention approaches, is PrEP, and I know that you guys are using that a lot. Can you tell us a little bit about what uh, uh, PrEP is and how you use it? Yeah, so just like um, protease inhibitors really revolutionized the way that we did treatment, uh, PrEP has completely revolutionized the way we do prevention. So PrEP is um, either a daily pill or a pill around the time of sex or a bimonthly injection, and it's pre-exposure prophylaxis. So you do that on a regular basis, and it prevents um, probably more than 99% if it's used as directed as uh, of new uh, HIV infection. So it's, it's very highly effective. And as I said, it's really revolutionized the way that we do uh, HIV prevention. And there are many different options depending on... Um, both your sexual practices and your gender um, as to what what tools you might use. But as there are actually four different tools, two different pills that could be used, one pill that can be used around the time of sex. And as I said, also this um, long-acting injectable 
treatment that lasts two months that has been found to be even more effective than pills um, for because sometimes people don't take their pills. And medicines don't work very well if they're not taken. It's somehow That's right. another adage of, of how things go. So we've covered the basics about how transmission is blocked. It's through behavioral changes, it'd be either condom use or um, abstinence, I guess, is 100% effective, uh, but or communities coming together and reducing numbers of partners. But what really has been revolutionary in the last decade and a half is the notion of treatment as prevention. If we identify everyone who's infected, get them on treatment, as you said, they benefit as an individual, but they don't transmit to someone else. And that has a theoretical ability to stop the epidemic. And then for those who are higher risk, uh, you can put them uh, into a PrEP program by injection or pills. How do you, how would you tell someone or the public uh, if they ask, can we end the epidemic with these modalities alone? Is that possible? And, and uh, are we doing that now? Well, theoretically, it should be possible because we've got both treatment and uh, for people living with HIV, we've got PrEP for people who are not living with HIV. But there are so many different barriers that get in the way of using those effectively. So it's not just about the biomedical interventions, but it's about the behavior. It's about the structural causes of uh, that fuel HIV infections. Um, it's about poverty and discrimination and stigma. It's about racism. It's about um, barriers to uh, accessing uh, care. And it's about competing priorities for people who may be particularly vulnerable, um, who are dealing with other issues in their lives and HIV doesn't necessarily rise to the top. So um, most models suggest that if you could really ramp up both HIV uh, treatment as well as PrEP, you really need them to be at very extremely high levels in order to, for instance, meet the ending the HIV epidemic goals, which are 75% reduction in new infections by 2025 and a 90% reduction um, in the U.S. in new infections by 2030. that you really need the combination of the two, which can be synergistic, but it's probably going to take much more than that alone. It really does take programs to support people in accessing treatment and prevention. So how are we doing in these goals? 75% by 2025 and 90% reduction. Uh, Are we going to make it? Well, we're not on track to make it right now. We're we're not doing very well. There was uh, only about a 7% decline in new diagnoses in the five years from 2017 to 2021. Now, we definitely took a hit with COVID. A lot of programs were shut down temporarily. There was a lot less testing going on. And so probably there was, you know, then an increase in discovery of new infections at later uh, time points. But Nationally, we're not doing very well, but what we've seen is that in some cities and in some environments, we're doing quite well. So, for instance, in San Francisco, we have had a decrease since we rolled out PrEP of two-thirds, by two-thirds, the number of new infections, new diagnoses in San Francisco. That's not to say that we've got all of the answers because we still have disparities and there's still a population of people that we've not yet been able to reach with our prevention and treatment tools. And so we're looking for innovative ways to do that. What do you think is the most effective? Is it all the above or being used at once? Or is there one particular modality? Is it the treatment is prevention 
seems to be dominating in San Francisco or prep, or is it maybe neighborhood by neighborhood in terms of how it's effective? Yeah, I think it's really, uh, it's got to be a combination of the two. I think all of the models suggest that just doing one or the other is just not going to be enough, um, that we really do need to do both things, and that we really need the support mechanisms to get those programs out to people who are exposed to HIV, who may be vulnerable to acquiring HIV, and we're not um, we're not reaching them with current tools. So we know we're not reaching, um, we know that... Uh, that the number of people that we're reaching with PrEP is, is not uh, where we need to be, that um, it's estimated that uh, only 36% of people who might benefit from HIV have been prescribed, uh, who, might, who might benefit from PrEP have been prescribed PrEP, um, but that that is 94% of white people, whereas it's only 24% of uh, Latino people and 13% of black African-Americans and only 15% of women. So we know that we're not getting to all of the populations that we need to reach with these tools that we have and that we really need to ramp those up. Yeah. And, and that's those two populations you mentioned there are disproportionately affected in the first place. So we really need to find ways to, to redouble efforts uh, to make that happen. What do you think happens if we end up, by some miracle, uh, having an effective HIV prevention vaccine? And how much do you think it would help us? I think it would add tremendously, um, particularly if you could give the vaccine, particularly if people were willing to take the vaccine, which we've seen with COVID is not always the case. Um, but if you could get, if you could roll out uh, a long acting vaccine that would supplement both PrEP and treatment, then I think you could really make a dent in the, in the epidemic. That's what at least some of the models suggest is that that could really further drive down new infection rates. And I think some of the data that I remember from the early 90s when we were hoping for a vaccine pretty quickly, you know, that the lowest amount of efficacy would be to affect 30% or so of transmissions of, of sort of a home run was considered 60% or anything higher than that could really bend the curves. It just, it seems to me that if we add together the things you said, uh, communities working together, outreach, uh, treatment as prevention to everyone who's identified, and ideally we identify 90% plus of people who are infected so they benefit and the community benefits. And then we add to that prep for the people who are uh, fairly significantly at risk, risk, and then a vaccine, you put that all together, it seems like that together is stronger than the sum of all those parts. Would you agree with that, or is that sort Absolutely. of pie in the sky? So you no, I think that they really would be synergistic with each other. Um, and uh, and it, it really does, so it really does require these communities coming together. In San Francisco, we have this group called uh, Getting to Zero San Francisco, and we brought together multi, multiple sectors of society, um, investigators and researchers, but also people who are in community-based organizations and activists and clinical providers and industry, um, government uh, universities, they've all come together with the same common goal of trying to get to zero infection, zero deaths, and zero stigma. And I think it really does require that um, 
synergistic approach so that we're trying to to touch all of these different areas that you've mentioned sort of simultaneously um, with both prevention, treatment, testing. We, we're estimating that 97% of San Franciscans who are living with HIV are aware of their HIV infection. That's, you know, again, that's another thing that I think has contributed to our substantial reductions in new infections. That's remarkable. Um, and I think the, the ability to translate that outside of the Bay Area, where it just seems like uh, San Francisco and that area has been it charged with a major community uh, effort, people coming together, that's not common uh, among other parts of the country. And where I live in the southeastern U.S., it's difficult to come by for a lot of reasons. But um, what do you what do you think? What's your secret sauce? What what would you suggest to someone who lives in Alabama trying to organize this? Uh, what what should we be doing? I think it really is about what we call collective impact, which is bringing together, you know, what what we found was that we had a lot of groups that were doing really great work, but they were doing them in silos and they were doing them individually. And it really came to coming together to then say, for instance, how do we roll out PrEP? And what we realized was we needed to both focus on the providers and getting more providers who were com- comfortable and um, able to give out PrEP, as well as educating communities and increasing the demand for PrEP, so both supply and demand. And then also a third group that came together that was looking at how do we measure PrEP uptake. So it, it it's that kind of sort of collective impact approach where you've got all of these multiple groups that are all working towards common goals that I think gets you closer to um, to where you need to get to. And there is a group called Fast Track Cities and a number of different cities have signed on that are trying to do this same kind of collective impact approach within their cities to bring together multiple groups. And it does take political will and it takes community engagement um, as well as, uh, you know, getting providers involved in community-based organizations and researchers and universities and government. Yeah. And our time is almost up, if you can believe that. But when I pull back to the big picture and think about where we started as you started off in the 80s and this sort of exploded on the scene, and then we developed tests and then therapies and modalities for PrEP and the understanding of treatment as prevention, and maybe one day a vaccine, it does feel kind of hopeful for the future. And I guess that keeps us all going. But the one caveat that I'd like you to maybe finish up with is this notion that what you do today is good for today, but it's got to be sustained, right? There are new people who are coming of sexual age, if you will, every year. Um, And those folks, even though we may have addressed it with the generation, if you will, before, this effort has got to maintain intensity and sustainability over the next couple of decades. So um, what, what are your thoughts on that and how, how can we get that together? Yeah, I think that's really critical. So even when I talked about PrEP and PrEP uptake, that's really just who's gotten a prescription. That doesn't mean that people stay on PrEP and a lot of people stop their PrEP use, sometimes for good reason, because there's been a change in their sexual practices, um, but sometimes for a, a variety of other reasons that um, 
make them vulnerable to becoming HIV infected. And as you said, we've got new generations that are coming up that also need to be um, uh, educated and have um, services provided to them. There's also, as you mentioned, in the South, we've got um, more than half of the new infections in the country are in the South. And um, that's also where a lot of the Medicaid expansion hasn't occurred. And so people have less access to resources. But there are other kinds of resources that um, are being put into the mix. And so I do think that we, it's going to require innovation. It's going to require consistency. We can't take our foot off the gas. Um, we need to continue pushing forward with prevention. Um, and we need to be sure that we're engaging new generations as they come up, as well as not forgetting about older individuals, because sometimes we seem to think that older individuals aren't still at risk of HIV, and they are. We still see infections in people who are in their older age categories. Um, and so it, it just it means that we have to stay aware, we've got to innovate, we've got to engage, um, and we've got to make access easier for people um, nationally. And to, to wrap up, um, your final thoughts, are you hopeful for the future? Do you think we're going to continue to improve over the next 10 years or so? I am hopeful. I do think that there's a lot, there's a lot more on the horizon as well. There are injections that may occur less, even less frequently for PrEP. There are monoclonal antibodies that may become available for prevention. Um, there are monthly pills that are in testing right now that could be used for PrEP that would make it much easier to take a pill once a month rather than once a day. Um, there are all kinds of innovations happening in the field of prevention that I think will really help us. As And there's uh, innovations in the treatment arena. And so the more tools we have available to us with the recognition that it's not just the biomedical tools, but it's all of the structures around those that we need to support in order to get to our prevention goals. But I am hopeful that we can really turn things around. There's no reason not to be, and we've got to just work as hard as we can to get there. And maybe one day a vaccine. That would be great. Um, and maybe one day a vaccine. Yes. There's a lot of exciting work going on in HIV vaccines right now. So I don't, it, that's also something that's very hopeful for the future. Right. And I'll refer folks to Dr. Kalp's interview that uh, on the podcast where he goes into great depth uh, on what those uh, new approaches would be ranging from um, mRNA technologies to really the, the essence of creating an injection uh, that will uh, stimulate the production of broadly neutralizing antibodies in vivo. And that would be uh, kind of a beginning of a home run, I think. Susan, thank you so much for joining us today. Very informative, hopeful, uh, but at the same time, kind of sobering when we think about how much work there is to do, not just in the Bay Area, but throughout the United States and around the world for that matter. So thank you for joining us and enlightening us on this approach. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Going Antiviral. Catch up on earlier episodes wherever you listen to podcasts and check out the video versions of this episode and others on the IASUSA YouTube channel. You can find these links in the show notes or simply go to YouTube and search for IASUSA and there they are. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review Going Antiviral on Apple Podcasts. 
This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to serve as medical advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the ISUSA or its affiliates. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, you can send it to podcast at iasusa.org to be answered in a future episode.